There's a story inside every smoke shop, with every cigar, and with every person. Come be a part of the cigar lifestyle of Boveda. This is Box Press. Everything's got a story. Yeah, what's the story behind the uh, what we're smoking now, the American? Well, Drew had an idea. I told him it was a lousy idea. And Drew's your son. Drew's my who's son. Who's also involved in the business of Casey <clears throat> He's Newman. our fourth generation. He's our attorney. He's slowly, more so every day, run our, our business. He had a dream, going back to the roots. The first, this factory was built in 1910 by the Regensburg factory. Regensburg family, their first brand was called The American. So Drew wanted to bring hand scar making back to this factory as well. Hence the name, the American, to pay homage to the where American, we started. Except it's a little bit different. Okay. This cigar is truly American. Drew wanted to make a cigar with American wrapper. We can do that. Got Jeff Borshowitz's Florida Sungrown wrapper. American binder. We can do that. Connected broadleaf binder. But American filler. We use some Cabana seed from Connecticut, but there's no real truly American long filler grow in this country. So we got he got the Mennonites in Pennsylvania to grow some long filler for him. And everything in this cigar is truly American. So the, the cigars, the boxes, the bands, the labels, the molds, the hinges on the boxes. Drew is obsessed. I said, Drew, it's going to be so expensive. You'll never make any money. You're going to lose money. But I'll tell you what, you can wait till your mother and I die and get your inheritance <clears throat> or you can get some of it now because it's, it's such a kooky idea. It'll probably work. Millennials have a different view of the world. You're a millennial. These, you know, and it's, it's really, really exciting. We had some problems along the way to get where we are now. Speaking of those problems, you kind of gave, uh, when you were talking about the filler for the tobacco, you had kind of a scorn on your face. Why is it difficult to have the filler all American made? Well, there was no American filler grown in this country, certainly in Pennsylvania. So the first six months, we had our rollers take Pennsylvania binder, use it for filler. So we aged it. This was, we started making these in March of 17, over two years ago. And the first batch wouldn't draw. They would not draw. Combustion issues, huh? So we had, yeah, it's nothing worse. You ever smoke a Cuban cigar? Yes. You ever smoke a good Cuban cigar? Yes. You ever smoke a bad Cuban cigar? Yes. There's life, there's an old movie called Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah. The best description where he said, life is like a box of chocolates. Same thing true with a Cuban cigar. Exactly. The best cigar, you can get the best cigar you've ever smoked in one box. The next one, it's plugged. There's exactly. nothing worse than paying $25 for a cigar you can't draw through. <laughs> That's the other thing. It's the outrageous cost that you pay for that plugged so cigar. We uh, went back to the drawing board and we got the regular, we got the Mennonites to grow some Pennsylvania filler forest that was already stripped and we got, we solved the draw issue and now we got, it's got a very unique taste. So being that the Mennonites are growing the filler tobacco, are they also aging it or are you guys taking over the aging process here? We're aging it ourselves. Okay. To help control how it reacts, how it ferments, see what you guys can alter to make it better or change the combustion. We make 100,000 cigars a day at J.C. Newman Pence in Nicaragua. Fuente makes probably the same quantity in Dominican Republic. This is not a hand scar factory yet. We took right. our tour. Right. It's like walking back in time. We're making cigars on these antiquated, hand-operated cigar machines, same machines that my grandfather made them on the 1930s. I was telling a reporter from Tampa Bay Times recently that we're using these machines from the 1930s, Great Depression. She said, you mean you're using replica machines? These aren't replica machines. These are the actual machines. Fast forward to what we're doing today, making, we are... It's hard to make handmade cigars in a small handmade factory like this. Right. We're making 60,000 these 
hand, uh, machine-made cigars, or these antique cigar machines, a day. We're only making 200 handmade, 200 Americans a day. Right now we have two two rollers. And if we were a regular cigar factory, we would have a bulk of the tobacco ferment and turn it and and control all, all parts of the operation like we do it in Nicaragua, like Fuente does in the Dominican. But we aren't, so we're uh, we're trying to make the most of it. We've been successful. We got good people here that know how to handle tobacco, but it's, this is not our main business yet. Drew's vision is right behind me. We have a uh, next year's our 125th anniversary, and we're gonna we're start a major renovation of this factory, which is a story in itself. Part of the renovation is to put a hand scar maker factory right behind me with 12 rollers and a reader, a lector, just like they did in the 30s. So the lector is the one that reads the stories to the rollers during the day, right? Exactly. Either the newspaper or a book. The, the or... news of the day. I said, Drew, you're crazy. No, I want to do it, Dad. So, well, we can do it then. So going back to those old days, another thing that I read from your dad's book was there's this tradition of two things that I thought were very interesting to the rolling community. One was Cuban coffee and an outside company coming in and filling the coffee for the workers. They pay what, three cents a cup and they would fill it all day long. But your dad declined to have an outside company come in and fill those cups of coffee because he didn't want anyone outside involved inside the business of making cigars and being around that process to accidentally screw it up or spill coffee. Well, Tab was a different culture. Sure. My grandfather was born 1875 in Hungary, came in 1888 to Cleveland in search of the American dream, came with his four brothers, two sisters, and his parents settled in Cleveland because there's a big Hungarian district in Cleveland. He didn't want to be, his brothers became tailors. He had to get a job. He didn't want to make clothes. So his mother paid a scar maker $3 a month to teach his son how to make Cigars. And at that time, there were 200 factories in Cleveland, but for a whole bunch of reasons. My yeah, grandfather Cleveland was hugely industrial, right? You know, with all the manufacturing and exactly what was going on. It was. But advance to this other question. So my father goes this, we open up this factory. My, It's not even open. My grandfather buys it. And my father's, it's a cleaning crew, clean it up here. And we had a big union factory in Cleveland and drove my father nuts. So dad didn't want to be unionized. So he starts up here and he starts cleaning up and he gets uh, some visitors. And the first guy was the coffee concession. And he says, I want to pay you $100 a week. Just give me the coffee concession so I can give coffee or sell coffee to all your cigar makers. And dad's never heard of that. It's very enticing. $100 a week, because his father's only paying him $75 a week. And right. dad said, dad's, my father's very ethical. He said, no, not doing it. Next day, he gets a, a visit from, uh, somebody says, I want to have the Bolita concession in your factory. For for people that don't know, the Bolita was like a Powerball. It's a numbers game. A numbers game. It was a racket. You you bet on it. It's like the, old, it's like the lottery. Yep. But half, you know, they would put the balls... You you put you pick each ball had a number. They yep. put it in a bag, and if you select if you select I want number sixteen, and somebody sticks their hand in the big bag, and if they draw number sixteen, you win the pot. It wasn't totally on the up and up. Yeah, they rigged it right with cold balls and yeah, people you, you, being like you put one ball in the refrigerator, right. and you put a freezer, and then you whoever sticks his hand in the in the bag fills around for the cold ball. And his buddy has number 16 or whatever. Right. Anyway, that was it. All the Tampa factories had it. They all had coffee. They all had Belita. My father was offered another $100 a week. $200 a week as far as paying him $75 a week. And dad said, no, he can't do that. That was so ethical. I said, dad, you ever regret you said no? He said no, but it was it was part of Tampa's culture. Coffee and Belita. But he wanted to build the trust between him and, his, and the workers with respect and trust and making sure that they weren't being taken advantage, right? That was his whole principle behind that. Yeah, that, that's why dad raised my brother and me, you know, treating people like you want them to be treated. We do special things for our employees. If you walked around our factory, even this day, I know everybody by first name. They, wow. know, they know me. It's more of a family atmosphere rather than employee-employee rather than employee, employee relationship. Right. 
I want to kind of go back to that heyday of cigars, back back to when cigars in society were kind of booming and it's kind of socially acceptable. And was, was there a time when you realized like, wow, this is the pinnacle or the utopia of cigars? I've been around so long. I started this business in 19, with our company, 1972. I was 24 years old. Just turned 71. And the business has changed completely. Tampa had a lot of premium cigars. This is the finest cigar capital of the world. The wrapper used on all cigars in the 60s and 70s, all premium cigars, was Candela. Nobody used natural wrapper. It was Candela. And Candela is the green. The green. The green. Unaged, unfermented. Why in the world that that's, that was just, everybody had it. Uh, Go Label had it. Garshvega had it. Fuente had it. Bering had it. Morgan Tobacco had it. Very few people, very few cigar companies sold to smoke shops. The average person who sold cigars in this country bought their cigars from a wholesale and candy tobacco distributor. There's probably 250 in this country. Nobody bought direct. Very few people, except maybe in New York, bought direct from the re- retailer, or bought direct from the manufacturer. In the uh, 70s, business was good. In the 1980s, sky business started to slip for everybody. Business going down 4 or 5% a year. In fact, there's only 2 billion cigars, 2 billion large cigars sold in in um, 1985, 1986. It was a tough business. Tough business for us, tough business for others. Family businesses are difficult. There's a reason why family businesses don't go from one generation to a second generation, then a third generation. In the 1980s, business really, really sucked. We had a third generation Newmans come in, including me, with families, the business was able to yield less and less. So we had a family buyout then because I know I'm rambling. I, I answer your question, I can ramble or I can do, do both. Well, back to the, I mean, back to the actual question per se. Okay. The, the business. Was there a memory when you realized like, especially being surrounded by so much cigar culture, do you remember being in a specific spot going, Wow. This is cigar culture. This is the the epic thing of camaraderie and people enjoying it. I mean, think back, like we, my generation is never going to know smoking in public necessarily from the standpoint of like at a gala or at a baseball game or at a basketball game or even in society in general. 124th year in business, we've gone through two world wars, the Great Depression, Cuban embargo, smoking bans. And crazy excise taxes now FDA regulation. In the 1980s, it was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the worst of times because the industry kept on, their consumption was going down. In fact, if you ask somebody, if they asked you what type of business you're in, you said, I'm in a business. It was almost embarrassing. <laughs> you didn't want to admit to that be you in the in business. business. The best of times back then is that because the business was going south, the government left us alone. We had, ah, you could smoke anywhere. Sure. You could, there was no excise taxes, no regulation. I guess they swallowed us by a natural death. And, but in the early 90s was the Renaissance, was the cigar boom. Nobody ever saw it coming. A lot of the credit really? goes to Marvin Schenken and Cigar Aficionado. In fact, Marvin had bought a rag of a newsletter called Cigar Spectator, uh, um, Wine Spectator in the 80s. And we had a visit one day from a fellow from the U.S. Tobacco Company. You know, they made Skull Copenhagen. They also had a, a St. Saint, Michel Vineyards in, uh, in California. And they told my father, if Marvin Schenken can, if he wants cigars, he wants to start a cigar magazine, if he does for the cigar industry what he did for the wine industry, you won't be able to make enough cigars. I said, BS, that'll never, never, never happen. Didn't see it coming. Never saw Absolutely it coming. Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, in Marvin's credit, he's so, I mean, when I grew up, he had French wines was number one and California wines was number two, three, or four. Now, f- because of Marvin, California wines have overtaken French wines and pop- popularity. Well, Scarface Sonato came out 
And it was a time when people started to be interested in the better quality of life, better luxury products, single malt scotch, small batch bourbon, macro beers, haagen ice cream, and cigars fit right into it. Cigars became really trendy, really popular. It's like hula hoops and cabbage patch towels, which you don't remember, right. but it was really popular. Talk about Carl Malone having an interview. When the cigar boom started, Scars were so trendy. Every movie star, every professional athlete wanted their own cigar. George Hamilton, Brett Favre, Nicole Miller. It goes on and on. And it was real. Um, Chuck Norris, Jim Belushi. It was, it was really chic to have your own cigar brand. And it was really popular. Were so you getting approached by these people as well? These famous people oh, yeah. that make every, cigars? Everybody, everybody wanted cigars back then. Did you ever make any cigars for them? Made cigars for Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka. Mike Ditka. Gotcha. In our business, in 1986, we started a relationship with Carlos Fuente family. We had a, uh, a leverage buyout. The business was really sucked for everybody. And it's decided that one side of the family had to buy out the other side. My grandfather had four kids. My father ran manufacturing. Yep. My uncle ran the sales and the sisters collected dividends when there were dividends, which there weren't dividends. So... It was the side that went, if we we're going to stay in the business, 1986, one side of the family had to buy out the other side. Some decisions are made with the heart and some are made with the head in life. We, my one third bought out two thirds. The other side of the family got the uh, cash. We got the debt and the opportunity. And yeah, I thought, the day that you guys, that your father came to this factory after you had purchased it from the other side of the family, your dad... Arrived early, you guys arrived shortly after him in the book, it says, and your dad said, this is ours. And you were the the only person in the group that said, wait a minute, dad, it's the banks, but we get to run it. That's, that's exactly right, dad. Isn't this great? We have no more rail, no more relatives. You know, this is our business. Well, it's not really our business. Right. It's, it's the bank's business. In fact, the day we closed the, the our deal, Valentine's Day, 1986, we had negative equity. If you're an account, that means look at a balance sheet. That means your liabilities are greater than your assets. The way we finance, we had no money. The way we financed the whole transaction was this building we're in now had no mortgage on it. So great. So we go to our local savings and loan and we got a big mortgage and we use that cash to pay off the relatives Two weeks later, we get a letter from the government. There's no more savings and loan. All the savings and loans went out of business. You don't remember that, but it was 1986. So the government had a group called the Resolution Trust Corporation, the RTC. They were our new partners. They were worse than our relatives. They weren't bankers. They were liquidators. And they were awful to do business with. Fortuitously, three weeks after we did the deal, there's a fella in an old cigar maker, not a longtime friend of my father who opened up a factory in the Dominican Republic in 1980, also had a cigar factory in Tampa, make his machine-made cigars by the name of Carlos Fuente. Carlos called my father and said, he's doing well in Dominican. Want to see if uh, we want to close his Tampa factory. Would we be interested in making his machine-made cigars in our factory? And we just purchased the business three weeks earlier. And dad said, yes, but Carlos... How about making cigars, handmade cigars for us in the Dominican Republic? Because we knew if we are going to stay in the business, we had to get in the handmade cigar business. And we did. So um, it's kind of a trade-off between you and the Fuentes, right? Well, back then, we wanted to have them make cigars for us because we had to get in that niche of the business, handmade business. Right. And we started with a brand called La Unica. Then in 1988, we changed, we converted our Cuesta Ray cigars that were machine-made cigars here and having Carlos make them for us in the Dominican Republic. The Fuente strength, excuse me, is always making great handmade cigars. They had the best hand cigar making factory in the world. Right. But they never had their own sales organization. They sold through brokers. Our strength was we had a good sales and distribution team. We never had our own hand making factory. So in 19, November 1st, 1990, we started to represent the Fuentes and started selling Fuente cigars as long as our, as well as our Questure and like Unica cigars, the marketplace. Right. So the Fuentes could concentrate on what they do best, not be focused on sales. Yep. 
we can be focused on sales and not worry about making cigars by hand. Right. They would do it. So we've been partners. We started up in uh, 1990. Fuente Newman now is called Arturo Fuente Cigar Company. And we've been partners for 29 years distributing their cigars. They've been making cigars for us for 33 years. Right. Now they're still making our Diamond Crown cigars, Julius Caesar, Maximus, and the Dominican Republic. That brings up an interesting kind of quote that I've been thinking about lately, especially to like me as a person, as a new husband, as just my professional career grows, and I'm just getting into it now. The quote is, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. So how has that impacted or changed your trajectory professionally and personally, the people that you surround yourself with? I have, my brother, I have two eyes, two ears, one nose, one mouth. We can't do it all ourselves. It's you have to have strategic relationships, strategic partnerships. We have a great team. We've been partners with Fuente family who've really complimented us. We complimented them, the marketplace, they're making cigars. Any company, forget the cigar industry, any business can only grow with the people they have on their, their team. You've met our marketing team. You've met, you see people in our factory. In life, you can only go as far as the people you have on your team. And we've developed a really strong marketing team, management team, tobacco team over right. the years. Because we can't, Bobby and I can't, can't do it all. With uh, Carlito and Carlos Jr., the Fuente family, just as, a, as that relationship built, how did that impact you as far as like the vision? Did you start to get excited about cigars again from a standpoint of like premium cigars? Here's a whole new world that is being open to you from that side of his relationship. Well, handmade cigars became popular probably in the 70s, the 80s. In fact, we could buy cigars cheaper from the Dominican Republic and Nicaragua than we can make in our factory here. We started with Fuente in 1990. Fuente was a was not a popular, was, was a pretty much an unknown brand. It wasn't, the, the business was so different there. They had spotty di distribution and, but they were selling in some areas, but Carlos Fuente was an inspiration, father and sons, you know, especially the father. He's like a second father to, to me. He had a work ethic like nobody's business. He went down there in 1980, brought seven employees, four of them are still with him. They had the four walls of their fa factory. He was bound and determined to make a su success of it. His tenacity, their persistence, perseverance was really an inspiration what it could be. And this is before the cigar boom. Right. And so, so they really had a strong they, they, they struggled. I mean, everybody, everybody's got a story. You're telling people stories. Right. Everybody has a story. Right. They, they struggle. And Carlos, I mean, father and son, Carlito ran the factory in Tampa. When they went and then senior ran the factory in the, the, the Dominican. And I mean, I remember the story Carlos would tell me in the early days, Fuente is on top, the, arguably the most sought after cigar in the world. And they deserved it. They earned it. But it wasn't always that way. Right. Senior would tell a story, go up to see uh, someone like Jay and I, Lou Rothman. And he was in line to, to see him and the guy ahead of him, Represented bearing cigars, sold them 25 cases of bearing cigars. So Carlos comes up there and he sells 12 boxes of curly heads. Carlos was thrilled. He was right. thrilled that he could have that type of success in the early years. You got to start somewhere, right? If there's ever a, a story of the tortoise and the hare, the Fuentes were, you know, were really the tortoise, persistence, tenacity, and then Carlito takes control of the business. He's got a vision, not rest, rest the hands of time. He has a vision for, for quality. Came out with the Opus X. And I mean, aside from that, he had his father's backing to uh, grow tobacco, to grow wrapper in the Dominican Republic. Nobody ever done that before. Right. Grew a lot of filler, no, no wrapper. But anyway, a story with, with the Opus X, Fuente Fuente Opus X, we have a label designer, label printer in Holland, Peter Vrydock. We were there first. We've been doing business with them since the early 50s. He does it with his, Peter's father, but 
they work on this Fuente, Fuente Opus X label. And Carlito could look at a label for 30 minutes and find a flaw on it. He's got an eye for quality. Wow. Everybody, we all operate at a certain level. Yep. Junior operates above us. He's got a different vision, which has been, uh, he's been raising the bar for us for, for, for years. We've been down to his factory. Uh, he had a major renovation in his factory last year. He even put a fountain in his factory. No, Nobody can really do what he, he, he does. Not to interrupt, El Rey Low. A lot of the Tampa factories had nicknames. Our factory was called El Rey Low, the clock factory. You can hear it here. When the factory was built in 1910, people get up by the hourly sound of this clock, eat, go to school, and go to bed. This is a true icon right. of the neighborhood. It's part of the culture, part of the history, part of the legacy of Ybor City. Right. For the bell is tolling. And it was, it's, and it's tolling for lunch right now, right? With it for lunch, it, it rings every hour on the hour. Gotcha. And it just happens to be 11 o'clock. This is lunch hour for our employees. So nice. That's this one, not interrupt the story, but it only rings every once an hour. I kind of want to go back to your early days uh, growing up in the household you grew up in. So I feel like everyone has a moment in their life where they know or realize that your family's a little bit different, whether that be good or bad versus other families. And particularly, was there a moment when it hit you that through making cigars, your family was having a unique experience on society? It's probably during the cigar boom, you know, with Cigar Aficionado, when we go to these big smokes and all these groupies out there. I came in the business in the early 70s it was a pretty decent business then, but scars, nothing all that special. Then it kept on going downhill in the 80s. So it was more or less a job, a paycheck. And when you're almost afraid to admit you're in the scar business. And, but when the 90s came, all of a sudden, we went from worst to first. Cigars became in demand, became in vogue. If you're in the cigar business, they thought you're really something special. But it's funny, as I told our bankers, when we were in our slump in the 80s, we weren't that stupid. And we were enjoying the the benefits of a cigar boom. We weren't that smart. In the right place at the uh, right right time. But even going to these big smokes started in the 90s. used to have eight or nine a year. And to see people lined up for hours ahead of time in order to get into the big smoke hall where you can get c- 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 cigars to meet us and the other manufacturers. So my God, this is a really special business, a really special industry. There's a lot of people have come in the business in the 90s and since then, and really not their fault, but don't have appreciation of how special our industry is today. Unless you've been through the hard times, people can't appreciate the good times. If you know people in the real estate business, you know, the, the real right. estate developers or, or selling or you know, brokers, and we had you know houses and would you know they increased their price to 25 percent a year in Florida and and but you you could put a build a house, start with a house, and flip it and double your money in a year. It's like a Midas touch. If you've been in this business, you've never seen a downturn. And unless anybody, there aren't many people around today that remember the difficult times of the industry. They may have come in the 90s or since then, where we have a really respectable, successful business industry up until a couple of years ago when we were under FDA regulation. I can't give a cigar to anybody. We can't give cigars to the our soldiers in Afghanistan are getting their butts shot at because FDA are afraid they may not like it. We can't even give cigars to silent auctions F- that we have for charities because FDA is afraid somebody actually might like our products. That being said, I, I play golf. Not a good golfer. <laughs> if I break 100, it's a good day. Right. I don't have that many good days. But you give us, if you... Give a guy uh, helping with your clubs off the golf cart. You give him five or ten dollars. They'll say thank you. You give him a cigar, especially you tell him a story 
and you made that cigar, it's a whole new level. It brings a smile right. to, to, to their face. We're bringing a lot of smiles around. We are in such a really stressful world that you can smoke a, a cigar, go to a cigar lounge, and all is right with the uh, world. But cigars are a special product. I can think of no other product around today, 20 years ago, where you can hand somebody and bring a smile to, to their face. And that, that's special, almost like your Santa Claus. Of course, FDA doesn't like us to give cigars out anymore, but in the old days, we could. So if you're in the cigar business, you're breaking something special. If I give somebody a cigar, it's our heart, body, and soul. It's 124 years of our history, right. for our blood, sweat, and tears of making this, this product, and we're sharing it with them. And that's special. That makes me feel special, too. About that um, kind of society or people in general, what do you think motivates people to incorporate cigars into their lifestyle? Cigars are something that you bring two people into a cigar lounge. One guy could be a CEO making a million dollars a year. Next guy can be off a, a garbage truck where right. you're sitting cigars, two strangers, you're bonding, you leave as best friends. It's an equalizer, right? No it is. The There's, income or the, the lifestyle, we both bond over a cigar and can have a conversation. God, there was a guy named, I had a retailer next to Antoine's in New Orleans. He was ahead of his time. Jim, I've got Jim's last name. He would sit on his bench next to Antoine's in New Orleans and just smoke a cigar. And just do it like this and join it, blowing smoke rings. People would come by and they were envious of seeing him, how content he was, how relaxed he was. Right. And it's, it's almost like, I want to be, be like him. Right. And cigars had the ability to provide that much of enjoyment, that type of pleasure. We're in the relaxation business and we to relaxation. Much, read that pleasure in this. You know, we, we're, we're running. You asked me earlier how many cigars I smoke. I don't smoke cigars during the day. I, I'll, I'll smoke a cigar to test it. But unless we're doing like this, even here, my cigar has been the ashtray for a half hour. It's because we're all running, running around. We're all running around like crazy. We as a society need to stop and smell the roses. Exactly. And, and cigars are one of the very few enjoyments in life that help you. That's do, why I love cigars. Do that. I get the opportunity to stop, relax, slow down. It almost forces you to. Yeah. And for me, some of the best cigar shops that I've ever been in don't have clocks on the wall because I'm not worried about the time. I'm only worried about enjoying this and enjoying the conversations that I have with people. Just just like this. Yeah. And we, we have, you know, I, I'm sure it's for our staff too. Nobody looks at the clocks. The day goes by like this. Pretty soon it's five or six o'clock. Time to go home because it's, well, and we have people that our team here, it's not a job. It's a passion. It's a love. I mean, Adria's over there. She's social me, me, media. She can be doing anything. This is an, an enjoyment. A, a, uh, it's a passion for her life. You and your brother have kind of carried on your dad's business. And now your son is involved yeah. as well. But back before you made that decision, do you think your father would have supported you if you didn't go into the business? Or would he always try to say, hey, I think you should come work with us? Dad would let me do anything I wanted to, 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 to uh, do. I wanted to go in the cigar business because it was our family legacy history back then. Probably didn't know any better. I got out of graduate school in business and wanted to uh, get into the business world. And I did something that isn't done anymore. Normally, when you go from undergraduate school to graduate school, you're supposed to take some time off. They, graduate schools don't let you go into, uh, unless you get a real world experience. And also it's unusual to go from school right into the family business. Now it's almost tradition, mandatory. My son's an attorney. My brother has kids. One's uh, still in college. One is still was working at a smoke shop, was working at Anheuser-Busch distributor. When children come up to go in the family businesses, they shouldn't go directly into the business. They go work for somebody else. So when you learn what it's like to work for somebody else, not to be somebody on the family ladder, and uh, so you can bring somebody in, so you can bring something to the business when that day comes, where you go into the family business. So you think it's important that they experience outside work before they come into the family's business 
and necessarily just learn from the family business. Yeah, we want somebody to bring something in to us because we know what we do. In fact, my grandfather, first generation, my father comes in in 1934 and they, they butt heads a lot. And dad <laughs> was very mild. My grandfather was pretty stubborn. A lot of stories about their confrontations. I come in and my brother and I are pretty even killed. So is my father. So one day I, I took cost accounting in, in, in school and I told dad our cost accounting system wasn't exactly right. And dad got very offensive because he, he developed it himself. Now my son, Drew, looks at what we're doing. He says, dad, why are we doing doing something like this? Why are we doing such, such like this? I, why are we doing like this? I said, son, because we always have. I said, dad, that's no answer. And he's right. Every generation brings different perspective into life and to to the business. And that's that makes us stronger, makes us better. I also found it interesting after reading the book that your dad had co-wrote with uh, the author. And your dad was busy guy. And your mom was also socially active through um, what's going on in the area. You guys oftentimes would host different kind of famous people. Benny Goodman be over for dinner. And your, your dad also mentioned that he always tried to keep the evening open for dinner, family dinner, and Saturdays open for family game night. Do you remember that as a kid? My, my parents always went out on, on Saturday night. Regardless of what was happening, they always went out on Saturday night, got a babysitter for my brother and me. My mother was very social. She was a, a public relations director for a local department store chain. In, in this part of Florida. And she would entertain these folks. You talk about Benny Goodman, Jack, Jack Benny. Oh, Anderson Cooper's mother is whom? Anyway, a, a famous de, designer. So my mother would, one funny story I told my mother's funeral, not Nicole Miller, um, Anyways, famous the designer. So she takes the Moss Brothers. My mother always felt an obligation to buy something from that designer, make an appearance at the uh, department store. So my mother bought a, a long sleeve blouse that very expensive, whatever. And then my mother had a lot of attributes, but she was not a good ironer. She went home and, and she put the blouse was in a bag, had wrinkles. So she pulled it out, she ironed it, and she burned the sleeves. So she had the dressmaker cut them off, make a short sleeve instead of a long sleeve. So blouse. So about three months later, my mother runs into this famous designer and says, how do you like my blouse? The designer said, that looks awfully familiar. Did I design that? He said, no, yours was a long sleeve version. My mother told her, I, I burned the, I burned your sleeves. And that's a sh- sh- short sleeve version. So she thought that was kind of funny. My, my father had a philosophy about, he thought his social life was going to kill him because my mother was not involved in business at all. So dad would work all day. Then my mother said, we're going here, this party, this party, this party. They were very active in the local social scene, more so than I am. But the, but the world has changed. Knowing that your family is a little bit different. Um, I remember, so, you know, I had that experience when I was younger, um, knowing that my family was just a little bit different than other families just because my father passed away when I was six. And so I didn't really notice that big of a change, but I do know when I got older, I would go over to a friend's house and I'd be, oh, there's you know two parents here and there's a male role model and that's different. And I, th- I just found that to be not, not bad or no pity or anything like that. I mean, I had a great childhood, but I just found that to be an interesting part and kind of an eye-opening thing that you don't realize that your family um, might be a little bit different. Specifically, where do you think your family was just a little bit different or something was was different from your perspective that you realized through your adolescence or early childhood? I grew up at a time when children are supposed to be seen but not heard. Unlike Carlito, who was raised in the, in the uh, cigar business, this is a male-dominated business in the 60s and the 70s. My son, Drew, started to go had a passion for the cigar business since he was five years old. We have a place called Bush Gardens here. They have a zoo yeah. camp. He's five years old. Last day of zoo camp, 
They let the parents take the kids into the park. Five years old, so we went to this shop called Timbuktu, and they're selling cigars. They didn't have our cigars there. And I was so disappointed. Little, my munchkin, five-year-old said, he saw how unhappy I was. I said, Dad, I got an idea. Great son, what's your idea? Why you give them a box of cigars to the buy a box? I said, what? Give them a box of cigars to the buy a box. Five years old, he's still thinking about the industry. When he was eight, he told me he was J.C. Newman reincarnated, his great-grandfather. <laughs> Drew has always loved the business. We took him to a trade show, IP, CPR. When he was 12 years old, he, he gave, he said, we gave him an order pad. He got more orders than any of our salesmen because they all liked to, and he really had a passion for, for, right. the, for the business. And that time, it's a, I never stopped and smelled the rose, just assumed it was going to be that way. When my father died in 2005. His last trade show was maybe 2001, 2002. I remember Drew, myself, my father walking through the trade show and somebody yelled to us, look, there are three generations of Newmans. At that time, I thought how special that moment was. Three generations of Newmans, the grandfather, the grandson, and me. And that was just, I don't know why, that always stuck with me. And I'll never forget that moment, how That's special cool. that, that, yeah. that moment was. Walking down the hall with three generations of yeah. Newmans. And be observed that way. I don't need the recognition because I took it for granted, but on the outside in, somebody said, that's really cool. And isn't it sometimes the most important thing is to sometimes get that outside recognition only for you to look at it from a different lens and appreciate it. Like you said, you're walking through this day in and day out and working with your father and you kind of take it for granted that relationship and that generational uh, legacy that's being carried. Every generation has new, has its influence this year, last, I guess this year, we started our different advertising campaign. We normally would advertise Diamond Crown, Brick House, whatever. This year, Drew started, let's advertise the family. J.C. Newman, so we've been running ads in Cigar Aficionado and Cigar Press and Cigar Journal, this one, this one, this one, of the three generations. My brother, my brother and Drew and I are in these ad pictures, not for an ego standpoint, but just to help tell the J.C. Newman story so J.C. Newman can get recognition. There's some of our competitors that have done a heck of a job. They've been in this business only a few years and have really done a good job promoting them, th themselves. Probably not so much for ego, but to help sell, sell their own product. Some of our competitors have their own name on their products. We don't. There's not a J.C. Newman cigar, right. but there is a J.C. Newman family, a J.C. Newman story. I mean, we, we know people have been in business for, say, 24 years. And they've done, and they've done a lot of good stuff. This is our 124th year in business. And we probably haven't done a good job as we should have if, as of uh, telling our, our story. During the 80s, the only way we or anybody in, in the industry, in the scar industry, could increase their, their business would be go out and steal their competitor's customer. And they're trying to steal our customer. During the 90s, cigar boom, the, the whole market expanded. So everybody couldn't even make enough cigars. Now we're back here. The market is still increasing, maybe by single digits. We're still trying to operate and trying to steal our competitor's customer. And they're trying to steal our customer. You only have so many cards to play in life and in business. What cards do we have to play that we haven't played is probably telling the family story, the family legacy to have stand, stood the test of time f since 1895. I think we're making a product just like my grandfather made 124 years ago. 124 years ago, we tell that the FDA, we're trying to regulate us out of business. It's really, really special. And sometimes we take that for, 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 for granted. My grandfather started, there are 42,000 licensed cigar manufacturers in 1895. You have to have a license even back then. Right. to make cigars to pay federal excise taxes. And it was 42,000 licensed cigar manufacturers from 1895 were the only one that's still around. It's still owned and operated by the founding family. Everybody else is gone. That means a lot or means nothing, but it means it's special. Someone asked me how we've been able to stay in business for 124 years in an industry that's always under attack. 
in family businesses, that's not easy. And I think because my grandfather and father, my brother and me, have been innovative, we've been able to embrace change. We aren't selling cigars the same way we sold 50 years ago, 100 years ago even, 10 10 years ago. Um, FDA, they want to, they have the ability now to take anything off the market that wasn't on the market 12 years ago. And the lifeblood to any business, any industry, is having new products, new services. So we've, I mean, my father died in 2005. We start. We had a brand called Quorum. We started in 2003, made by another factory. Well, we found out that we were vulnerable because it became a bigger part of our business in that Altatus or General could buy the factory. We'd be out of luck. So in 2011, we started our own factory, J.C. Newman Penza, yep. the second biggest factory in, in Nicaragua. My father would be absolutely amazed to see what we're doing. But when he was around, we didn't have a factory. So that's just in recent history. Um, we've been able to, my, my, in the early 50s, good, oh, so many, so many stories. I'll tell you a story. There's, there's two cigar booms in our history, in the industry's history. Most people only know one cigar boom. Right. The first cigar boom was during World War II. Really? Uncle Sam bought 35% of every cigar manufacturer's production. Can you imagine making a lighter, a widget, a cup in a manufacturing facility where the first 35% of your output every day was already sold? It was great. The, uh, Why got, was the government buying those cigars? They were supposed to send it to our soldiers in Germany and the Foxhole so they can enjoy products and enjoy our, our cigars. But what happened after the war, they go back and see my grandfather. They put all these cigars in the storehouses, warehouses. They never shipped them over. They wanted to re- return them all. And my grandfather said, uh, no, you bought those cigars. You keep them. He said, okay, Mr. Newman, but let me tell you what we're going to do. We, we represent the taxpayer. We have to get something for these cigars. We're going to sell them to a liquidator for maybe 10 cents on the dollar. Liquidator will sell them to one of your wholesale candy and tobacco distributors for maybe 50 cents on the dollar. And they're going to want full credit anyway. And besides, Mr. Newman, you don't want these dry cigars. They were dry. They didn't rotate them. They weren't humidified on the market with your bands on. So we had the cigar boom the, during the World War II. 46, 47 business sucked. We were getting more cigars back than we were shipping. So one day, my father and grandfather go down to Cuba. They were using like Cuban tobacco. And when you grow tobacco, the stalk maybe grows six feet high and they pick different primings of the tobacco. But they would leave the top part, the thick part, just out of the stalk. They just plowed under. It was the thick tobacco. My father went to the farmer and said, you aren't using this tobacco. Would you, would you harvest it for me and sell it to me for a cheap price? And they said, sure, I'll sell it to you for 75 cents a pound. So my father bought this tobacco, brought it back to Cleveland, and, the, and, and they put on a brand called Cameo. In the late 40s, nickel cigars were very, very popular. You had a nickel cigar. We have a number one selling nickel cigar in the Midwest, thanks to my father, selling a million cigars a week. My grandfather and father go on a selling trip in 1950, and they get an order from Niles and Moser, big distributor house. They have distributing houses in Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma. I want to give an order for half a million cigars a week. My wow. father is thrilled. He goes to call the office. My grandfather said, thank you for the order, but we aren't making any money out of nickel. Come Monday, it's going to six cents. Say, Mr. Newman, we don't want a six cent cigar. We want to make your company's or five cent cigar. Our company's nickel cigar. Of course, my father came back in the meeting. He was fit to be tied. He knew what was happening. They raised it, raised it from five cents to six cents. Three months, they lost half their business. Then my grandfather lowered it back to a nickel. It was too, too late. They lost their business, lost their customers. But because the cameo, initially after World War II, it kept us in business. In the early 50s, there were five big cigar companies trying to run the little guys like my grandfather out of business. Big companies grew their own tobacco. Maybe it cost them $3 a pound. But they would intentionally offer the farmer $6 a pound for a little bit of their needs to set this fictitiously high market price for $6. So the companies who didn't grow their own tobacco were screwed, like sure. my grandfather. So my grandfather said, we, if we're going to stay in the cigar business, we can't compete with these guys. They, their costs are a lot lower than our, our cost. 
we have to find a niche of the cigar business where they are not in. And back in those, in the early 50s, they were in the mass market business. So my grandfather said, we have to get in the premium business because we don't have all this competition. In the early 50s, there's only one section in the United States making, making um, premium cigars, Tampa, Florida. So when he was 78, he moved into this factory, the whole business into this factory, found a way to make it go. Make it go. We moved here in 54. There were 10 big family-owned companies making Cuban cigars still. Cuban filler, Cuban binder, Cuban wrapper. The Cuban embargo comes January 1961. One by one, the factories go out of business. They move offshore. They sell to other companies. But my father wasn't going to throw on the towel. He discovered a new wrapper called Cameroon. Yes. Cameroon tobacco was a lot more expensive than other tobacco. But dad found a way. Everybody else in Tampa was selling a 26 cent Palma, 42 by six and a quarter. Everybody in Tampa, premium cigar, a, a six and a quarter by 42 ring. Now 42 ring looks like a Panatella. But right. those days, Bering had one, Go Label had one, Perfect Garcia had one, Garcia Vega had one, Fuente had one, every, every Tampa, Tampa, Morgan, everybody had them. And um, my father... So, so how can you make a cigar out of Cameron wrapper? You lose money. My father decided to charge 35 cents for it. Pack, pack it in a, in a Cuban packing in a two bundles, a box of 50 in a redwood box. So everybody was getting 26 cents. He was getting 35 cents. It was the, 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 the cigar was that, that good. So Cameroon was able to save our business. Then it's been a history of innovation. My grandfather, first cigar manufacturer to ever banned in cellophane, a cigar on a machine. He took a old peanut pouch machine. He had a DuPont converted to making, able to cellophane a cigar on a machine. Grandfather was the first to uh, have It's a Boy and It's a Girl cigars, maybe 80, 80 years ago. That's interesting. That's a long kind of tradition with people. Hey, get the It's a Boy cigars and pass them out. It is. And it's just being innovative. In life, if you want to copy somebody, you can have very little chance to be successful. You need to be innovative. Our partners, the Fuentes have the short story. Fuente short story. Yeah. It's been probably been knocked off 25 times. Nobody's been able to do it because they were the first. Right. Uh, they had a between the lines. Everybody's have their own, their own between the lines. So we have natural Maduro. You know, they've, they've copied their Hemingway series, but they were the, the, the first. And people have tried to knock us off on our, on our value price bundles. But nine times out of 10, forgetting cigar, just any industry, whoever is the first to the market with a new idea, new widget, new promotion, nine times out of 10, they'll be the most successful. So by being innovative over the last 124 years and creative, following our own path, um, it's tough going up when you're a little company going up with these big five companies like happened in the early 50s. My father would say, they have 100 soldiers. We only have 5,000 soldiers. We can't, we can't fight them. We have to go around them. Right. And we've been su successful for all these years. And earlier you talked about alliances. It's our alliance with the Fuente family has been tremendous. Yeah, we couldn't do it all ourselves. We couldn't make handmade cigars. It is important in life. You have to have strategic partnerships in our top number one numero uno strategic partnership our family's had since 1986 has been with the Fuente family. And um, hopefully they feel the same, same way because um, they remember the early days. They remember when it was tough to sell 12 box of curly heads to Lou Rothman in New York. Now they're kind of on top of the world, but they earned it. They right. lived down there, they worked at it, and uh, with Carlos Fuente Jr.'s vision for quality, do not rush the hands of time. If a cigar is not ready for the 100th anniversary, and they started in, in 1912, 2012 was their 100th anniversary at Special Cigars to celebrate. Sure. The cigars weren't ready, so what'd they do? They introduced it in 2013, 2014, <laughs> because they, they weren't ready. That really is, they will not rush the hands of time. So even though you wanted a 100th anniversary cigar to come out on your 100th year, the Fuente said, no, it's just not ready. And you added a delay releasing it. That was their philosophy. That's good. Uh, that's, that's quality, right? That's why Fuente is a, is a Fuente. They have right. a bar. 
if they were owned by uh, Wall Street, they make different d- decisions. If we were not a family-owned company, we'd make different decisions. I used to joke, my father and brother and I could make decisions in, in, in the restroom here. May not make always the right decision. We can make a decision like this. Where some of our bigger competitors are owned by their national companies in, in Europe and in Sweden, Denmark, yep. and Spain. They have to file, you know, write up the report, send it over there, and maybe take them a week or How two. How does or that a month. make your company a little bit? Uh, we're more nimble. Yeah, we're, we're f- 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 flexible. If we have an idea, uh, we can. The only people we have to answer to is ourselves. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, we aren't going to fire ourselves. If we were a public company, you're only as good as your earnings for the last quarter. And it's you know funny talking about the the cigar boom. One of the interesting facets of the cigar boom in the late seven, late 1990s was most of the companies went public. Cigars we talked about earlier were so trendy. Uh, Wall Street was paying not a multiple of profits. They were paying a multiple of sales. All of our competitors went public. Huh. I mean, you, you had- Ash Did you went, guys get offers to go public? Oh, we looked at it. We said, Wait, are we stupid? We're leaving all this money on the, uh, the table. Sure. The way it works is a company would sell less than 50% of their stock to the public and they're paying inflated price. So you still control the business. The problem is when you're public, you almost sold your soul. You can't, everybody, everything is public. We met with uh, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Raymond James, how this thing thing works. And the more we talked to them, how going public works, the more we shied away from it and found out this is not, for, for us. Is it because it didn't flit, fit your philosophy of how you wanted to run your business? Or we, you- we lose control of our business. We love being able to be nimble. We love being able to make decisions like this. We love not having the answer to any, anybody. Carl- those decisions might be different as well, right? Like you said, you, you look at the decisions if you're public based on your last sales from last quarter. You're only good as that. In a- so here you're making decisions how? Differently. We look at an opera. Opportunity, and we say there's an opportunity to do X, Y, Z. And we said, let's do it. If you had to get permission and make a proposal to somebody in Europe, it might take me a year to get back with you, and the opportunity may be gone. Yeah. The Fuentes share the same philosophy. During the cigar boom, they could have sold their business for many hundreds of millions of dollars. But Carlos Fuentes Sr. had said, I can I I can I can only eat one steak at a time. What am I going to do with all the uh, money? You know, so we, it's a passion, it's a life, and you, you can either cash in your chips. I got a call from uh, a major company a few years ago that just bought one of our competitors. Said, "What are you doing for succession planning?" They just bought this company, looking at, you know, wanted to search around if we were interested in selling. I said, "We are not." Because third generation, fourth generation, my son Drew was interested in this business. Who thinks he was my grandfather reincarnated? Who <laughs> wanted to tell me when he's five years old, give the guy a box, scars to buy, buy a box. That was his in his heart, body, and soul. If he did not have an interest, we'd probably sell it because you can't take it w- 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 with you. You have to um, pass it on, pass it on, or do s- something with it because you can't. You know. For it's it's fan businesses are, are tough because my son has such a passion for the business. We'll pass it on to him, like my father passed it on to my br- brother and me. Nice. It's good to know that it's in good hands and it's running the same course as. Well, Drew used to be. When he got out of law school. He became a uh, legislative director, Washington D.C. for one of the city councilmen that run the state of Washington. In essence, he was a reg- regulator. He knew how regulators think. We're having, FDA has given us the fits. So Drew is now handling all of our FDA issues. I, I kid Drew, I said, you've come from the dark side. You're a regulator. <laughs> now you're now you're working with us. So we, we, we've met with FDA a number of times and other branches of, of, in, of the government about our issue. And, and uh, Drew was so patient with him. I said, Drew, they're almost like the enemy. I said, Dad, when you're dealing with these people, you have to look at the world, not the way you see the world, but through their, their, their eyes, their lens. Right. And it's helped us to... Uh, calm me down and, and Drew's very prepared. So he's active, very active in that arena of FDA regulation yes. and helping with, I'm assuming Cigar Rights of America or other organizations. Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. 
of so many stories. My, my wife and I want to be grandparents. Put that aside for a second. Drew's 37, it's about time. He's, he and Ariel have been married for five years. And we've been having some high-level meetings in Washington. All the regulations that come out of the FDA have to be scrubbed and reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget, OMB. And last December, we got a, a meeting with the director of OMB, a guy by the name of Mick Mulvaney. And it's hard to do. Very personal guy. He's now Trump's chief of staff. Gotcha. Big guy up there. And so Drew is, we, we are like 45 minute, 45 minute presentation. And Drew handles it all. He knows what to say. He's very good at articulating our issue. And at the end, uh, Drew talks about our four generation fam, family business. And Mulvaney looks at him and says, Drew, is there a fifth generation? I just burst out laughing. I said, Director Mulvaney, we want two things. We want to get exempted from regulation for premium scars. We want to become grandparents. So see what you can do to talk, talk to it. There you go. And now Mulvaney, about a week later, he got that promotion, if you call it that. Sure. Working with, with, so are uh, you grandparents Trump. yet? No. Not yet. Not Still yet. working on it. We want, a, we want a fifth gen- generation in our sure. business. Yeah. Keep it we going. want to become grandparents. But we have nothing to, to do with it. Right, right. As right. my son has reminded me of. But anyway. I also, speaking just on cigars, society, where do you think their place is in society right now with all these changes that are happening? Where do you think cigars' place is in society? The greatest threat to the industry today, aside from FDA, have been smoking bans. You love cigars. We, we, you can't smoke any public building anywhere. People love our products. You can't smoke inside. But most states' bans still promote, still permit smoking in smoke shops. So right. smart retailer has converted part of his smoke shop into smoking lounges, parlors, places like Cheers. Right? But right. he knows your, your, your name. You're from Minneapolis? Yep. It gets cold in Minneapolis. Gotta Where the inside. heck are you going to smoke cigars in the winter? You can't smoke inside. And it's 15 degrees outside and snowing. But there are places, Stogies on the Grand in your area, that have smoking lounges that have become like an oasis right. in the desert. And giving people the opportunity to smoke inside. It used to be, when I was the first came to the business, you go to a cigar store, you grab your cigars, you go home, go to the golf course, go whatever. They were, now they're destinations. People go to the cigar store either to hang out, you know, watch a game, smoke a cigar, have a drink, whatever. It's a, it, the whole social fabric of cigar smoking has changed because you can't smoke inside anymore. But the industry has been able to adapt. And again, the smart retailer has converted part of his lounge, part of his store into lounges. And that has been one of the saving graces of the industry, I believe. Creating that oasis, creating that environment to share in the community of cigars. Before, when there weren't smoking bans, they wouldn't have that camaraderie. There wouldn't right. be any need to it. But it's uh, in Florida, we can smoke in the winter because it doesn't get that cold. We can smoke outside. Right. But from where you guys are from, uh, consumption still is an issue because consumption has become more and more of a seasonal business. Unlike cigarettes, we've told this to the FDA, you can't smoke anywhere inside and you go by any office building in the United States, and you'll see a bunch of people smoking outside. But when was the last time you saw anybody smoking a cigar? And the answer is never, because you aren't addicted to, to cigars. See, cigarette smokers who you know can't go two hours without getting their nicotine fit. Cigars, cigars you know, you could smoke two cigars a day, two cigars a week, two cigars a month, or two cigars a year without going into withdrawals because cigar right. smokers, we told us the FDA, they smoke cigars because they enjoy them. It's, it's a passion. It's, it's enjoyment. But so it, they aren't hooked on it. So, it, But if that's, a, if that's a problem for the industry because consumption drops during the wintertime, even with the, there's not enough cigar lounge in Minneapolis to right. take. And I'm sure your, your cigar consumption increases in the summertime. Yep. You're on the golf course. It decreases in the wintertime. Right. So- the place for cigars then, is it socially at lounges or do you think it's privately when you go home? I think it's more at the, the lounges 
or a man cave. Some people turn their garage into a man cave. I don't smoke inside the house. I don't know if you all do. Um, I smoke outside. We have a outside room. But for you personally, do you enjoy more going to a lounge and having a conversation and being in the environment that's cigar smoking? I do. It feeds on each other. What are you smoking? What am I smoking? What are the politics today? What, what, what about the, the, the Bucks? What about the Vikings? You know, just what about Trump? What about anything? And it, again, we're, I feel like sometimes on a tre- treadmill, like a rat in a maze, you're always rushing around. You go to a cigar lounge, it almost forces you to uh, slow down. And that's a great thing because there aren't many enjoyments in life that'll, yeah. that'll foster your, your time to slow, s- slow down. So you'd be in favor of having more areas basically to smoke cigars in public to be around like-minded people that enjoy cigars as well. Yeah. Even what we're doing is unusual. In 2002, they passed an amendment to the Florida Constitution. You can't smoke inside anywhere, including here. So we filed a lawsuit against Jeb Bush, who was governor, the the, uh, president, Senate, Speaker of the House, saying you're depriving us of our livelihood. We you saw our machines downstairs. Scars come off the machine. We need to be able to light it, test it, see how it draws, smokes, taste. American Cancer Society said, just take your scars out in the street and you know, screw them. But so we sued the uh, state. We won the battle and we lost the war. I wanted the smoking ban to be thrown out as unconstitutional. We couldn't run our business. There are only four exemptions for smoking cigars in the state of Florida. You can smoke at home if you don't have a caregiver. You can smoke in a uh, hotel room if it's a smoking room. You can smoke in a smoke shop or you can smoke in a bar. Less than 10% of the revenue comes from food. Well, they call this a smoke shop. There's about 10, 10 companies in Florida have an exemption like we do. They call us a smoke shop. We aren't a smoke shop. But so we won the battle. We lost the war. We still have the smoking ban here. Right. You still got to play within the rules. But yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah. I really appreciate you taking the time today, sitting down with us, giving us the American cigar to smoke and enjoy this conversation. As always, thank you for being a guest on Box Press and producing some of the best cigars in the world. Thank you, Rob. My, my pleasure. Look forward to seeing what it says and looking forward to what you're going to think about these sample cigars. We're going to give you in a couple I am too. moments. Thank you. I am too. So challenge to everyone out there, get a buddy, do a blind taste testing, see what they like uh, without the bands on it. Let's remove the bias and see what we actually like as far as flavor. 